Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Omicron uncertainty. The U.S. shows disappointing jobs growth as the COVID impact remains unclear. Kazakhstan's lethal order. The president tells security forces they can kill without warning amid protests. And tennis turmoil. Novak Djokovic thanks fans amid vaccine visa controversy. It's Friday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us on another Jobs Friday in the United States. Just released numbers show the U.S. economy adding a much weaker than expected 199,000 jobs last month, the second straight month of disappointing gains. Economists were expecting a rise of about 400,000. That said, we've got a sizable drop in the unemployment rate now down below 4%. U.S. wage growth, that came in above expectations as well, and that could reinforce perceptions at the Fed that the labor market continues to heal. Early reaction in global markets looks like this. U.S. futures are weakening with tech tech looking to be set for another challenging session. Tech is coming off its third straight day of losses on fears that the Fed will aggressively cut economic support to help tame inflation. The Nasdaq has fallen more than three and a half percent just this week. Europe is mostly lower. New numbers today showing Eurozone consumer inflation at record highs. But core inflation was not far from ECB targets. Asia finished mixed. The Hang Seng, a big winner here, rising almost 2 percent. Tech rose and property shares bounced amid expectations for more Chinese government support. All right, let's get right to the drivers and a closer look at today's jobs report. uh, Tom Porcelli joins me now. He is the chief U.S. economist at RBC Capital Markets. Great to have you with us this morning. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So considering what the expectations were, twice as many jobs added in December, I want to hear about your um, your reaction to this report. Yeah, you know, one thing we were flagging and had been flagging really for the better part of the last year is that this report is really plagued by by adjustment problems. That has been true for, um, for, 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 for the better part of the last year. And so what I would um, submit to you is that I don't know that we're really supposed to be paying all that uh, much attention to this, this, this number and specifically the change in jobs. Here's what we know. Um, what we know is that ADP, the, the sort of the, the companion report uh, for, for jobs in the United States, uh, came out earlier in this week and printed 800,000 jobs. Initial jobless claims are now back to the pre-pandemic level. Nearly every single measure of consumer confidence toward the labor backdrop um, is back to the pre-pandemic level or better. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, the fact that we, you know, sort of, um, you know, um, wait with bated breath for this report every, um, you know, every the first Friday of every month. Um, I think right now, particularly given this, these seasonal adjustment problems, is is um, probably a bit misguided. Every other measure looks like a tight labor market, and that's where we are. Okay, so you say we shouldn't pay much credence to this report, but here's the thing. Omicron really didn't take hold in December as much as it's taking hold in January. You know, yeah. my next question is, you know, should we be more concerned about January's report now that December's report missed expectations by by you know by a big number as well. Yeah, so it's a it's a great question, and so what I would say is just look back at when Delta really came um, uh, into the forefront. Um, you know, I'm looking at the data right now. This was back in what July and August. <laughs> you know, on average over those two months, we printed 500,000 jobs. 
you know, I, I think that there's there's almost no question that you know you're probably going to see some sectors um, uh, get you know uh, um, feel some effect from that. Leisure and hospitality is obviously one of those sectors that could feel the the impact from that. But on balance, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the the job gain element of the backdrop. Um, was was not nearly uh, as impacted as I think some people might might think, and so I think that's really useful context around what may or may not happen with Omicron. Again, what we know is that the the labor backdrop is is tight, quit rates are rising, um, meaning people are feeling really confident about going from one job to another. Um, I, I I feel pretty confident that over the course of the year you're going to have another good uh, uh, labor market. Talk us through how the unemployment rate dropped from 4.2% to 3.9% when we're only seeing 199,000 jobs added to the economy in December. Yeah, so this is a, this, (laughs) as my daughter shouts at me, I'm sorry, sweetie. Aw. Say hello. It's okay. (laughs) So it's a snow day, so they're very excited. Um, Understand, yes. Uh, Understood. (laughs) (laughs) So so, um, on the unemployment rate, um, the, the, What's interesting about that is, the, so the, the payroll report is broken up into two different surveys. One is the establishment survey, um, which is you know the 199,000 job gains that we're talking about. The other is the um, household survey. Um, and the household survey is you know basically the VLS, the the, the government agency that um, uh, compiles this data. They basically call people and ask them, "Are you employed?" Um, that number, that that number of employed, right? So it's a separate employment uh, measure. That number of employment rose by 650,000. Um, just as way of comparison, last month it rose by a million, right? I mean, so think about these last two months um, compared to um, uh, the, the you know, sort of the private uh, NFP number that we all pay attention to. Um, and so that is what enabled the unemployment rate to really fall is that we have people that are saying they're employed. Now, I think this is a really important, maybe slightly nuanced idea, but worth just bearing out here really quick. The one thing I would say is people that say they're employed in the household survey you know, they could be working for themselves. Um, you know, they could be uh, consultants, et cetera. So, um, I, you know, it's, a, it's an important idea to bear in mind, whereas the establishment uh, um, number, again, the, the, the plus 199 that we we're talking about, that those are people that are working for um, um, companies. So it's a, it's a great question, a very nuanced idea, but that's why the unemployment rate fell. Yeah, and not to get too nuanced here, I mean, it really shows how difficult it is for uh, f- for this data just to be collected right now when it's changed when there are so many factors involved, right? Yeah, no, I I, I think I think that's a completely fair point. Look, I, I think that the good thing is here in the U.S. we have so much data that we can look at. Uh, you know, there's there are mm-hmm. countless um, um, employment metrics and and labor market reports that you know, will help us build a mosaic of what exactly is going on from a, um, uh, a labor market perspective. And that's what I was uh, starting to say at the top. It's, I think if you look at all of this data, in combination, they really drive home that the labor market is in really fine shape on that. Okay, uh, ending on a positive note, go ahead, go play in the snow with your daughter. <laughs> Plenty of snow to build a snowman <laughs> today. Thanks for your time that. today. Thanks. Tom Porcelli, the chief U.S. economist at RBC Capital Markets. Okay, now to uh, the latest on Kazakhstan's violent protests. The country's president ordering security forces to shoot without warning. I gave the order to law enforcement agencies and the army to open fire, to kill without warning. 
Abroad, there are appeals to the parties to negotiate for a peaceful solution of problems. What nonsense! What kind of negotiations can there be with criminals, with murderers? We had to deal with armed and trained bandits, both local and foreign, namely with bandits and terrorists. Therefore, they need to be destroyed, and this will be done shortly. Nick Robertson is live for us in Moscow. So, Nick, Russian troops have now arrived in Kazakhstan. I'm curious if you're able to even get a clear picture of what's really going on there. It's very hard to get a clear picture. The details that we are getting uh, have so far come from very occasional phone calls we can get through and the government and what the government is saying. And the figures the government are putting out at the moment don't really seem to add up. You heard the president there saying he'd issued a no warning shoot to kill policy. Uh, we spoke with one person in Almaty uh, just a short, uh, short time ago who said overnight last night there was a continuous sound of gunfire uh, ringing through the city all night. He said right now the center of the city uh, is now controlled by the military. They've got three big checkpoints in the center of the city that you can't get near the checkpoint because the soldiers shoot in the air. Uh, this person said that he'd seen bodies on the ground. He'd seen four bodies lying on the ground while he'd been out on the streets in the morning. But the figures the government is giving at the moment of 18 police officers or 18 law enforcement officers killed, 748 injured. But the government's saying, despite this shoot to kill without warning policy, uh, 26 protesters who they describe as, as criminals, armed terrorists with outside training. They haven't given evidence to support that. Uh, 26 have been killed, but only 18 injured. Now, those figures don't really seem to add up. In a scenario where 748 law enforcement officers are injured, 26 protesters are killed, that only 18 protesters would be injured. That really doesn't seem to seem to add up. But the picture that is getting out of the city is very chaotic. On Almaty's streets, in a hard-to-verify social media post, an ugly overnight crackdown. People scream and scurry for cover. Panic as well as bullets in the air. They're dead, they're dead, a man says. A motionless body, just out of safe reach, stretched out on the freezing ground. In the same city, the country's biggest, protesters fought pitched battles with uniformed forces. Casualties accumulating on both sides. Law enforcement appearing to gain the upper hand with arrests and killings. Police claim they took deadly action overnight, describing an as yet unverified shadowy shoot first, ask questions later, crackdown. Last night, extremist forces attempted to storm the administrative buildings and police department in the city of Almaty. Dozens of attackers were eliminated and their identities are still being verified. The mayor's burnt-out office in Almaty, apparent testimony to the ferocity of the battles fought. Without offering proof, the Kazakh president claiming protesters are foreign-backed terrorists, an often-used trope to deflect blame that the Russian government is also repeating, a characterization rejected by protesters. We are neither thugs nor terrorists, this woman says. The only thing flourishing here is corruption. 
We want the truth, this protester says. The government is rich, but all of these people here have loans to pay. We have our pain and we want to share it. But truth and facts here are in short supply. The internet down for a second day. Residents reporting a scary quiet, braving government warnings to stay indoors, to go out and search for open shops to buy essentials. Russian state media reporting heavily on allegedly rampant looting by some protesters, as well as highlighting violence against Kazakh law enforcement. As part of a regional security agreement, Russian paratroopers began deploying to guard state and military facilities. A fourth consecutive day of protest. Gunfire and explosions still rocking Almaty. Now, while the centre of the city may be a little bit quieter, there is a shortage of cash at the moment and there is rationing in some in some shops, uh, people being given limited amount of food because that's all that's available. That Russian supply of troops that's going into the country, a very, very big airlift underway, 70 uh, military transport aircraft involved in moving uh, those many, many hundreds of troops uh, into Kazakhstan. Okay, this seems to be a fast-moving story. Nick Robertson, I know you'll stay on top of it. Thanks so much. In Hong Kong, several top government officials and 19 lawmakers are being held in quarantine after it emerged they attended a banquet with someone who was COVID positive. More than 150 people were at the event. Ivan Watson joins us now. So from what I understand, Ivan, when the event was held, it was not illegal at the time. But is it safe to say that the perception isn't good? Not only is it not good, you've got these senior government officials who are making public apologies because they know how bad this looks uh, as they're being sent into government quarantine. Look, Hong Kong has had one of the strictest quarantine regimes since the start of the pandemic, and it has largely succeeded in keeping COVID out. There had not been a local transmission of the virus for almost three months until mid-December, until some air crew uh, were accused of breaking their home isolation and going to restaurants, nightclubs and bars, and started local transmission. On New Year's Eve, the Hong Kong government issued a dire warning saying a fifth wave of infections could be upon the city, urging everybody to work together to stop the virus, uh, that it was critical. And then Monday night, you had a whole bunch of top government officials, pro-government lawmakers at a birthday party at a Spanish tapas bar in town, about 150 people in attendance. And since that party, two of the attendees have tested positive. The chief executive of the city has said she's deeply disappointed among the people now who are being sent into government quarantine. And I think we have some pictures of this kind of notorious government facility. It used to be a holiday camp. It's called Penny's Bay. And that's where you get sent uh, for weeks at a time if you are believed to have been exposed to somebody who's COVID positive. Uh, CNN employees who've had to stay there have, have shared their own images of the conditions 
Karens there. Uh, among the people that are going are the Home Affairs Secretary, uh, the uh, head of the Independent Commission Against Corruption, who just issued a public apology uh, for uh, and regretting uh, the incident, uh, and, and uh, 19 other lawmakers as well. There's a government investigation into this party, and the local media has posted images of uh, we can't quite confirm, but of what appear to be party goers uh, singing with microphones with their masks off. So so this is not uh, a good look for the Hong Kong government, certainly this long into the pandemic. Allison. And I understand we have new information on the problems facing people who've tested positive in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, uh, once you get caught into the quarantine system or if you test positive here in Hong Kong, there's no appeals process, really. You, you're really stuck in the health system, which has largely worked, but we've heard nightmare stories. And just before your show went to air, I got a government press release from the health authority saying that on January 7th, they took a four-year-old girl who was at that Penny's Bay quarantine facility. She had a runny nose. They transferred her in an ambulance, apparently unaccompanied by a family member to uh, a pediatric ward where, quote, the girl was arranged to stay on a child cot with a cot side rail up and provided with a call bell to call for assistance from the staff. Apparently a four-year-old girl given a, a button in case she needed help while left alone uh, in, the, in the pediatric ward. That girl, the press release go, it goes on to say, walked on her own out of the isolation cubicle at 8 p.m. last night and was instructed by a nurse to go back in quickly. Uh, the nurse didn't have a face shield on, neither did another medical staff member. Those two are now being sent into the government quarantine, and the girl, who has subsequently tested positive for COVID, is being sent to another hospital. No mention of any uh, accompanying relative or parent or anybody like that. And that's a four-year-old girl being moved around uh, the, the quarantine uh, treatment facilities and uh, the COVID treatment facilities in the city. Just one of the stories uh, that, that, that we're hearing uh, in Hong Kong. Back to you, Allison. Okay, that's certainly disturbing. Hopefully we'll keep track of that four-year-old girl and, and see how um, you know, things progress there. Ivan Watson, thanks so much for your reporting. These are the stories making headlines around the world. Tennis star Novak Djokovic has thanked fans for their support as he faces a visa dispute in Australia. The Serbian player is thought to be staying at a hotel used to detain migrants after authorities denied him entry for failing to meet vaccination requirements. His supporters have slammed the government's actions, and Djokovic is trying to overturn the decision. Here's how fellow player Rafa Nadal uh, reacted. He makes his own decisions and everybody uh, is uh, free to take uh, their own decisions, but then uh, there are some, some consequences. In some way, I, I feel uh, sorry for him, but at the same time, um, he know, he knew the conditions since uh, a lot of months ago. Our Paula Hancock joins us now with more. So Paula, Djokovic's parents are now saying he's being held captive, but the Australians say he can leave anytime he wants? 
That's right, Alison. We're really hearing some very emotive language coming from the family and also the supporters of Novak Djokovic. We're hearing from his father, his his mother as well, saying that he is uh, being held captive, that he is a prisoner. His father going further, uh, saying that uh, that it is a, a persecution of Serbia as well, saying that Novak is Serbia, Serbia is Novak, saying that is it is uh, politically uh, biased. But what we've heard uh, from uh, from the Home Affairs. Uh, minister uh, is that Novak Djokovic can actually leave any time he wants. She said he is free to leave at any time that he chooses to do so. He's not being held captive. Uh, In fact, the border police will actually facilitate that, meaning that they will help uh, to deport him, pointing out that anybody coming into Australia does need to have the correct documentation. Otherwise, this is what will happen. And we're seeing this really go to the highest levels. You're hearing from the Australian prime minister. You're hearing from the Serbian president. You're hearing a mote of language from the families uh, and the supporters. And then it is very polarising. You're also hearing criticism from some on the ground in Australia, especially Melbourne, who has, which has been through uh, some very lengthy lockdowns uh, and, and pointing out that others are suffering far more. Also hearing uh, from those who are supporting other people in detention in that same facility that Djokovic is in, some of which asylum seekers, refugees have been there for years. Now, also an interesting development. We're hearing from the Australia Border Force about two other uh, players that we heard about. They say that one has had uh, their visa cancelled. We're hearing from the Czech Foreign Ministry uh, that that is actually Renata Vorakova. Uh, She's a Wimbledon doubles uh, semi-finalist. Uh, she is in detention, uh, just like uh, Djokovic at this point, we understand from the foreign ministry. Uh, they say that she is probably uh, going to leave voluntarily uh, as her visa has been cancelled, but she's not going to fight it because of uh, issues with not being able to, to train at all. And there's also another individual that has already uh, left Australia at this point. So it just shows uh, that this is not just Novak Djokovic. There are other people within the Australia Ocean open as well, that uh, that have fallen foul of entry requirements coming into Australia. In fact, the newspaper uh, in Australia, The Age, said that, uh, that Vorakova uh, did enter with a medical exemption as she had been infected with COVID-19 in the past uh, six months. And CNN cannot independently verify that. Uh, but that certainly is something uh, that's, uh, that is being speculated about Novak Djokovic as well. He has not clarified uh, what his medical exemption was for. He's not clarified if he is, in fact, uh, vaccinated. But to have a medical uh, exemption, it would suggest that clearly he is not. Uh, So this is what people are looking at now. Were these players uh, given the instruction that they could come to Australia with this medical exemption of having a previous uh, COVID infection? And then things changed when they got on the ground. Alison? It could be a major miscommunication, but I'm sure they'll sort it out at some point. Paula Hancox, thanks so much. Still to come on First Move, travel turnaround. The CEO of Booking.com says demand is strong despite COVID and cancellation challenges. And trade by train, soaring shipping rates give an old land route between China and Europe a new lease of life. COVID and bad weather continue to disrupt a key travel period. 
Airlines around the world have canceled more than 4,000 flights today. The total number of canceled flights in the United States now tops 27,000 since Christmas Eve. But my next guest says that despite the challenges, travel demand remains strong. Joining us now is Glenn Fogel, CEO and president of Booking Holdings. Great to have you on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. And what a week it's been for travel. Um, and I'm curious what you're seeing on your site. Are you seeing travelers actually cancel, you know, not just flights, but, you know, accommodations like hotels and attractions as well? Well, of course, anytime that there's an increase in infections, when people start getting concerned about getting sick, uh, they will certainly double think, should they really travel or not? And that's obviously impacting travel right now. And then, of course, all the headlines about a bit of a trouble getting planes in the air in the United States is also impacting some people thinking, should I travel now or not? It's a little bit um, unfortunate because the actual percentage of planes that are being canceled is rather low. It's a single digit number, but it makes for very big headlines that can cause concern to people. Yeah, tens of thousands of people unable to, to fly where they need to go and seeing those long lines. What do you think should be the message to travelers right now? Well, I think the message is, is, as we always say, look, if you have to travel, of course, you're going to go. If it's something that you may be able to put off, then maybe you want to do it. But it's all up to the individual. How important is this uh, trip? How important is it to get somewhere? And how much are you willing to suffer a potential delay or even a cancellation and a rebooking? It really is up to the individual. You know, things had looked so bright before Omicron really took hold. Where do you think that we're going to be a year from now? Is this kind of the new normal is where, you know, there's always a new variant that throws a wrench in, in the travel business. I mean, should we just be prepared for that? Well, I think over the last two years, we have begun to realize that this is not a something's going to go away. And I think the more we read about the experts talking about it, we recognize that this is something we're going to have to live with. And we have to adjust our living to uh, having this type of variants come up. There'll be infections go up and then people have to make adjustments. I do hope, though, a year from now, though, we don't have this very high uh, number of infections at once that disrupt so much of society. And we end up in something. Look, we live with the flu every year in uh, the winter. We have a flu uh, vaccine that we go and we get and some people get sick. And hopefully we'll be in that sort of a situation and it'd be wonderful we can be because this is very disruptive to what we're trying to accomplish. Vaccinations are a big part of this discussion. I'm curious how you feel about requiring passengers on planes to be vaccinated, you know, to fly domestically. This is something that Dr. Anthony Fauci said the U.S. government should consider. Yeah, he did. He did mention that. And I think it is worth looking at. If somebody wants to come to the United States, they have to be vaccinated. If I get on a plane from New York to Los Angeles, I don't have to be vaccinated. Now, there's a lot of people debating whether or not being on a plane is that dangerous or not compared to a restaurant. But using it as an incentive to get people to get vaccinated, that's an interesting thing. I say even before you go there, just creating different lines at TSA at the airports where if you're vaccinated, it's much faster to get through and making if you're not vaccinated, make it it's going to take a little longer. That alone could cause some incentives for people to get vaccinated. Anything we can do to get people to get vaccinated, I'm in favor of that. I want to talk about prices for a moment because we were expecting prices to jump in January, especially for airfares. What are you seeing, not just airfares, but hotel as well? Well, look, there are always going to be supply demand drives the price of an airline ticket or a hotel reservation right now. 
So if you end up with a situation where people all of a sudden are not traveling, you'll have a slight decrease in the price. However, the problem now, of course, is airlines not being able to get planes in the air. The availability in January could be a lot less, and that could impact some of the prices going back up. You may have noticed, uh, for example, Alaska Airlines already cutting back its scheduled uh, number of flights for January because they just can't get the pilots up in the air. So it's always a function of that. Long term, though, long term, though, I feel that you end up with an equilibrium. We'll get back to something a little bit more normal. How flexible do you think the travel industry will continue to be with change fees and other fees as people need to change their plans with, uh, you know, with the pandemic in effect? Yeah. Flexibility is so important. People need to recognize that something can come up and you're going to have to cancel. So you may not think that you really want to buy that non-refundable. At our company at Booking.com, we're trying to make it as flexible as possible with as many of our products available that are flexible that you can cancel or you can change and it not cost you a lot more money. All right. Glenn Fogel, CEO and president of Booking Holdings. Great conversation. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And stay with us. The market open is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running this Friday, the first week of trading for the new year. It's winding down and we have a mix open. Up. Oh. Actually, all red arrows after the release of today's December jobs report. The the economy adding a weaker-than-expected 199,000 jobs last month, but the unemployment rate fell sharply. Wage gains came in above expectations. The numbers appear strong enough to allow the Fed to begin raising rates as soon as March and perhaps begin unwinding its pandemic-era balance sheet. Shares of GameStop, meantime, are rallying on reports that the video game retailer is setting up an NFT marketplace. GameStop shares soared last year as part of the wave of meme stock madness. But shares have since slumped down more than 24 percent last month alone. We'll have more on GameStop and crypto in just a moment. But first, a closer look at jobs. Let's bring in Christine Romans. She joins us. You know, Christine, I... I looked at this number and I thought, you know what, we were supposed to see accelerated job growth. We just didn't see that. Uh, talk about with me um, what you saw. So I see a lot of churn, uh, churn in the American labor market. And I think these numbers are reflecting that. As you know, there are two surveys that the government puts together every month for this one uh, non-farm payrolls report. And in those two surveys, they tell two different parts of the of the labor market. The, the survey of companies showed 199,000 net new jobs added back into the economy. The survey of households showed huge job creation. That's why the unemployment rate fell so sharply to 3.9%. So when the government is surveying people at home, they're saying, yeah, I'm working. And when they survey companies, companies are telling them how many jobs they're adding, and it's not as many as you'd like to see in a robust job market. And that's because the entire fabric of the workplace has really changed, hasn't it, over the past two years? You have uh, 1.2 million fewer women in the labor market at the end of last year uh, than at the beginning of the pandemic, and that's partly because of all of these education challenges, right? It's because of COVID. It's because women are also finding new uh, business ventures. They're founding them on their own. They're not going and working in the office like they used to. So you've got a lot of different dynamics happening here. You have older workers who are retiring, maybe permanently, maybe some just temporarily 
temporarily, but they are buoyed really by record high stock market values and 401k balances and a housing market that's been really strong. If you've been in your home for 10, 15, 20 years, you've got home equity that is pretty enviable. So there are a lot of different things happening here. And there's also this take this job and shove it um, uh, kind of aspect to the American labor market right now. And you've seen it. All these uh, quitters, they're calling them in the labor market. People are quitting. They're quitting for better jobs and better opportunities. They're using the money, stimulus money from the past couple of years, and they're redefining what their role is going to be in the workplace. And so all of this is happening at the same time, which makes it pretty confusing to read some of these numbers sometimes. Yeah, it indicates that a lot of people are just self-employed, like with consulting jobs, let's say, from home. Uh, You know, President Biden is expected to speak, I think, in about an hour from now. What are we expected to hear from him? You know, I think the president will focus on that 3.9% unemployment rate, and it would make sense to point out the work that still needs to be done. We're still three and a half million jobs short since the uh, since the pandemic began. Um, I expect you'll hear him talk about Build Back Better and some of his initiatives that he wants to make sure we're investing in the American workforce. That's what he has pretty uh, consistently uh, done here overall. You know, I think another thing here that's important to point out is that what number is the Fed watching? Is the Fed watching 199,000 net new jobs created? or is the Fed watching the 3.9% unemployment rate? I think that falling jobless rate gives the Fed room to be raising interest rates early on this year, you know, by March or whatever. So that's what we're watching for kind of in the in the marketplace, really. What are the expectations um, from the Fed here? I will also point out, and this is really important, you know, when we've been saying missed expectations, we've been saying that for like the past several months. Well, the expectations have been totally totally off and pretty wild. And the government itself has been um, raising, you know, revising higher uh, numbers later on, which they did here in this December report. They revised higher October, November to the tune of 141,000 new jobs. In normal times, that would be a big, big job gain revision. These aren't normal times. So that's important to remember, too. We'll likely see this number revised and maybe revised substantially. Maybe not have expectations. Maybe we should just push those aside for at least the next six months and maybe things will... You know, Alison, context, 6.4 million jobs added back last year. Wow, that is a lot. 537,000 average monthly jobs gains in the year. I never thought I'd say a number like that. So it just shows you we had a terrible collapse and this is the build back and it's volatile and unpredictable and sometimes hard to characterize. We're clawing our way out of it. Christine Romans, thanks for walking (laughs) us through everything. Have a good weekend. You too. Bitcoin has plunged to its lowest level since September as political turmoil grips Kazakhstan. The nation has one of the biggest crypto mining industries in the world. In August, it accounted for more than 18 percent of the computing power used to mine Bitcoin. That's second only to the United States. Paula Monica joins us now. Uh, Great to see you, Paul, to break some of this down for us because we're seeing Kazakhstan's deadly a deadly uprising affect crypto. And is this the reason we are seeing crypto assets tumble? I think it definitely is one of the reasons. It may not be the only one, Allison, but uh, make no mistake, Kazakhstan has become an increasingly important part of the Bitcoin chain, if you will, in the world right now, especially since China has cracked down on a lot of Bitcoin mining activity. So I think a lot of the Bitcoin mining that might have been done in China has maybe moved 
to Kazakhstan. And obviously, the United States is still the world's largest market with regards to uh, Bitcoin and other crypto mining. So, I mean, I think we can't underestimate the fact that Bitcoin is still an incredibly volatile asset and that there are also concerns about whether or not inflation will hurt Bitcoin in the same way that, uh, you know, potentially could be, you know, bad news for gold. Yeah. And talk about timing. Goldman Sachs comes out and says Bitcoin is going to reach 100,000. You know, hard to believe. I mean, we're looking at Bitcoin off. uh, Think about its record high was near $69,000 in November. Uh, You know, what is what's Goldman Sachs's rationale for, for for putting this out now? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, obviously, it's a bit of a contrarian, uh, you know, sort of view at this time. But keep in mind also, Allison, that this is a long-term prediction. They're saying a hundred thousand, potentially over five years, as Bitcoin becomes more like digital gold, a store of value. You may have more investors that decide that they want to own something like Bitcoin instead of gold or currencies or other uh, classic store of value investments. And if that happens, you have increased adoption of Bitcoin driving the price. But I don't think Goldman has any illusions that this is going to happen overnight. It's a long-term prediction. Yeah, as we watch Bitcoin falling another three and a third percent. uh, (sighs) Paula Monica, thanks so much. And coming up on First Move, Christmas came early for the truck maker Too Simple, testing a fully autonomous vehicle without any human intervention. We'll tell you what happened after the break. Welcome back. I want you to look at this vehicle here. It's driving, but there's no driver. There's no one behind the wheel. In a, in a world first, this self-driving truck is heading into automotive history. Cameras mounted on the vehicle captured the 130-kilometer overnight drive in Arizona last month on public roads, successfully navigating its way through traffic. While there was a police escort, the company said there was no human involvement whatsoever and no one in the cab. Cheng Lu is the president and CEO of Too Simple, and he joins us now. Great to have you with us. I want to hear right away, what kind of looks did you get? Tell us about the drive. How did it go? Good morning, and thank you for having me. Uh, Well, the drive was a success. But before we get into the drive, um, the reason why Too Simple exists is because as consumers, we live in an on-demand economy. We want our goods and services delivered the same day. And this trend is not slowing. And trucking is what moves 80% of all the goods in the United States and many parts of the world. In the U.S. alone, there's over 2.3 million Class 8 heavy-duty trucks. And at the same time, it's also one of the weakest links of the supply chain, uh, given the increased driver shortage, labor turnover, and safety environmental costs. And, of course, the pandemic has made this issue front and center, but this is also not a trend that's slowing down. So at Too Simple, we are developing the world's first first-to-market, scaled, fully autonomous trucking solution. And we believe autonomous trucks will play an important part of the industry to make it more resilient uh, and uh, efficient. So last month, we did achieve, as you said, uh, a really significant milestone for the company. Uh, It was industry first, uh, 80 miles, uh, I think 120 kilometers, without any driver on board. Uh, While there was safety precautions, but even the police vehicle unmarked was falling half a mile behind. So this was really industry first, 
no driver on board, no remote control of the vehicle, and true commercial operations of a fully autonomous truck. Where is True Simple with the technology at this point, to where we see these driverless trucks literally on the roads? Well, we are seeing the trucks on the roads, but we are still uh, in development mode. Uh, will not these trucks? We're expanding the number of routes over the coming years. Uh, they're fully autonomous. We'll expand the scale and number of autonomous trucks on the road. But but today we're primarily in development stages. Okay, okay. And I understand you have a partnership with NVIDIA. How crucial was this chip deal with NVIDIA? And is the chip shortage um, impacting uh, your company at all as you as you sign your name on this deal? A great question. To, to really enable the solution, we work with many great partners, and NVIDIA is one of them. They have been a, an investor and, and a great partner for the last uh, five years. If you think about what it means to make a autonomous truck, we basically have a lot of sensors, uh, cameras, LIDARs, radars that take input data from the world. So we see the world around us, and we have to have a very um, smart software, our virtual driver, that is using the most cutting edge artificial intelligence and machine learning technology to understand what's happening and give very specific, safe, reliable commands to the vehicle. And to power that software, we have to have a very powerful compute unit. And that's what our partnership with NVIDIA uh, means. So this is something that's not in the market today. Uh, As leaders in this space, uh, we do feel like we have to develop it uh, will play a role in developing ourselves with, with partners like NVIDIA. Sorry. I do want to get a question in about your pre-orders. pre-orders. I'm curious how many pre-orders you have. And if you're able to generate a profit, I know with so much research and development going on, um, is it a situation you know where, where you're burning through cash? In terms of pre-orders, as of today, we have close to 7,000 uh, orders uh, of, our, of our vehicles. Uh, and these are um, from really the largest shippers and carriers uh, in the U.S. Um, in terms of our operations, um, we are a technology startup. Um, we are uh, using more capital than we are, are are generating in terms of revenue. That is that is correct. Um, but at the same time, we were the first and uh, autonomous driving company to be publicly listed last year on the Nasdaq. And so we're fortunate to have great shareholders and a strong investor base and significant capital to allow us to really bring this solution on the roads uh, over the next several years. Mm-hmm. All right. Cheng Lu, president and CEO of Too Simple. Great to talk with you today on the show. Thank you for having me. And coming up, the pandemic has caused major dis- disruptions to global shipping. We'll see how that's creating new opportunities on land. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. As the pandemic continues to wreak havoc on global shipping, the use of trains for long-haul cargo between China and Europe is suddenly looking more attractive. From Paris, Cyril Vanier has the details. This train arrived uh, last night to Paris and will be unloaded uh, today. At this freight station outside the French capital, the end of a journey across two continents. So this train carried consumer goods all the way from China to France. Headbands, electric bikes, sweatshirts, shoes, you name it. But also items that are used in industry. 
components and spare parts like steering wheels, like valves, tubes, and then all of them are going to be trucked to their final destination. Rail only accounts for about 5% of goods transported between China and Europe. That number, though, set to tick up as an old trading route is brought back to economic relevance. Beijing has been promoting, even subsidizing it, part of its Belt and Road Initiative aimed at increasing trade ties and China's economic clout. More than 6,000 miles from the city of Xi'an through Kazakhstan, Russia, Belarus, Poland, Germany, and further into Europe. An odyssey usually completed in less than a month. The train is uh, this advantage to, to be uh, able to have a, a circulation within three or four weeks between Europe and China. The time uh, is more quick and time is more near, of course. The value of time not lost on businesses, especially those that ship expensive cargo. Luxury French furniture brand Ligne Rosé sells its iconic sofas around the world, with 20% of exports going to China usually by boat. So this container full of furniture is about to leave for Xingtao on China's east coast. It should get there in about 50 days. Now a similar container left yesterday by train and that should get there in 35 days. These last few months the maritime route has been a nightmare, says the group's transport director. Shipping has become two or three times more expensive and a lot slower. Europe-China by sea is now taking up to 70 days compared to 40 previously. The pandemic has thrown the global supply chain into disarray. An increase in demand and a shortage of labor to work the ports and drive the trucks has led to scenes like these, a bottleneck of cargo. And so the good old-fashioned freight train is making a comeback. Near Paris, the director of development here expects the number of trains plying the Europe-China route to double by the end of the decade. The only spanner in the works? Even trains, billed as more reliable, are not completely immune to the pandemic. This one arrived two weeks late after multiple German operators came down with COVID. We live with the pandemic like everybody. As we say in French, c'est la vie. Cyril Vanier, CNN, Paris. Finally, on First Move, if you're in two minds about the color of your next new car, BMW says it's possible to have both. And no, this is not a video trick. This concept car displayed at the Consumer Electronics Show has been a huge hit on social media. The SUV is covered in a special wrap containing e-ink like in a Kindle, but on a bigger scale. There are no plans as of yet to put this into production, though. Ah, oh, bummer. But good idea. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you soon. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.